0: Right? Yeah. Got a little groove, a little funk to it. Yeah, I love that little sound in the middle of it. Um, you'll get used to that over the next few weeks. Um, this is our Faithful to the Core series, which has become a rhythm for us here at Jacob's Well. We do this at the beginning of every calendar year. We revisit um, core essentials of who we are as a church. And so we work through, uh, today we start with our name. Why are we called this strange name? Um, and then our vision. Uh, where do we believe that, that God is leading us, what's sort of the North Star of our community. And then over the next five weeks, um, we'll talk through our five core identities. Oh, oh not represented by these <laughs> wreaths, but usually represented by icons uh, that are up here on the stage. Um, and so they're the little, they're the things down bottom on the face of the core slide. There you go. Um, you can see them there. That was a genuine moment. <laughs> that is not that. Um, so today we work through our, our name and our vision. You know, a name is important. A name is, um, it, it's, it's interesting because especially in, in the West, um, names have less important than, than in some Eastern cultures. Um, maybe some of you come from tr- traditions where names have a little bit more meaning, where your name maybe relates to something in your family's past or your name in biblical times, especially especially uh, among the, the people of God in the Old Testament, the Jewish people, a name was um, really wrapped up in your parents' deepest hopes and aspirations for you. And so you'd give your child a name that they would then be called to live into. And I think that that's... That's a really cool way to think about our name, Jacob Swell. Jacob Swell is a name that, that we want to live into, that we're moving towards, which is deeply related to the idea of vision. Um, sometimes I go into more detail of this, but for now, let's just say our vision is, um, is who we want to become. It's, it's our, in the business world, in corporate world, a lot of times vision uh, is called your preferred future, your the, the outcome of what you're doing ultimately. And so this is, in both senses, our name and our vision, are things that we want to move into, things that we, put it this way, they're, they're things that we want to be worthy of. And so we want to be worthy of the name Jacobswell. We want to be worthy of the vision. Our vision is actually that little one-liner underneath our, our logo there. Our vision is breaking barriers to encounter Jesus together. That's our vision. We want to become that. We want to be worthy. We want people to say, of Jacob's well, even if they don't use this exact verbiage, right? Vision always has this sort of like cool, whatever, memorable, catchy uh, lingo to it. So you don't have to use this language. But the idea here is that as... Jacob's Well makes an impact in central New Jersey, in Middlesex County, in the lives of friends and neighbors, that people would say, yeah, what, what's Jacob's Well like? And that we would be known as a church that, that breaks barriers to encounter Jesus together. And what's, what's beautiful about these two is that our name and our vision go very much together, because that vision comes from the very story that our name comes from, which you just heard read by Amy and her Cute little assistant there. Um, so let's work through that passage. Um, John chapter 4. We happen to be in a longer series in the Gospel of John, which is just kind of cool, so consider this a little fast forward. Um, we'll probably look at this text again when we actually come to it in our series. But for this morning, uh, we're going to be in largely those, those first 10 verses. And so as we work through this, I want you to keep in mind, right? This is... Um, this is what we, from the very beginning, we read this story and said, man, this, this, this is the kind of church that we want to be. This is what we want to be about. And so that's what I want going, and so that's why we named ourselves this. That's why our vision comes from this. And so uh, here we go. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although John himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So, uh, right here at the outset, again, we're fast-forwarding in our series in John, but basically, already, fairly early in his ministry, Jesus is getting some recognition. Jesus is causing a buzz. Jesus is very much newsworthy right now. He's he's on the headlines. He's what people are talking about. There's things about him on the little streaming thing underneath, you know, whatever news channel you watch, right? Um, Everything he does is breaking news, um, which that's one of the weird things right now. Why is everything breaking news? When I was a kid, breaking news was like once every five years and you freaked out and we're like, oh no, what's happening? Now everything's breaking news. Um, But Jesus is breaking news. Uh, That's what this is saying. It's saying he's caught the attention of the powers that be. And specifically, what he's caught their attention for is uh, that he's baptizing more disciples than John. So this is John the Baptist, who we've looked at the last couple weeks, actually. And what's interesting here is John the Baptist was already on their radar, and now he's like upping what John the Baptist was doing, is basically what this is saying. I love the parentheses here in verse two. Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Do you know what that's saying here? It's saying already... Even the thing for which Jesus is stirring up trouble is a misunderstanding of him. Already they're not getting their facts straight about Jesus. Already they're missing the point of what Jesus is doing. We're told that something about this moment drives Jesus to leave Judea, verse 3, and depart again for Galilee. So Judea is the southern part of, of the, the ancient Near East. It's where Jerusalem is. It's the hub. It's the hotspot. It's New York City. It's the place where everything happens. It's the center of, of their world at that time. That's where Jesus is, and he's, and he's a big deal down there now. And people are catching wind of him and the people that matter. He's, uh, he's, he's at the height of his popularity. And it says, precisely because of that reality... He decides to go back home. He decides to go up north to Galilee, where kind of nothing happens, right? Like he's in New York City, buzz is happening, and he says, "Yeah, it's time for us to to head up into the Catskills, right? It's it's time for us to head upstate." That's what he's doing here. He heads north to a much quieter place. Okay. Everything in this passage, this is like a heightened version of something that I want us to have as second nature as we go through the gospel of John. We're going to get really used to the gospel of John. And I told you a couple times already now that one of the things that John is always doing is he's kind of working at two levels. He's working with real historical events, but he's also trying to show us deeper, more universal realities, whether that's about Jesus or about us or about what discipleship, what following him actually means. And so there's, there's two things going on here. This really happened at the height of his popularity, Jesus leaves. But the way that he tells us is also to say, you have to see how disinterested Jesus is in the kind of celebrity and fame that this world is obsessed with. He's saying it's precisely because his popularity is at an all-time high. It's precisely because the the interview offers from CNN are coming in that he says, I'm out. So he heads up to Galilee. And then verse 4, if you've been with us for any amount of time, you're going to hear some things that I hope are really familiar. Because the more you're here at this church, the more I hope John chapter four sort of works its way into your DNA, works its way into your heart and your mind, and you begin to say, oh, I I remember, I remember this part. Verse four, I hope, becomes memorable for you because it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. So just geographically here, Jesus is down south. He says, at the height of his popularity, I'm headed back up north from where I came from. Do you remember last week what we learned about where he's from up north? Remember one of Jesus's earliest followers goes and gets his brother, for those of you who are who are with us. He goes and gets his brother and he says, "We think we found him. We think we found the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth." And the brother says, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" Right? And the brother says, "Come and see," right? He he is going to a place where not that much happens. He's going to a very quiet kind of back water, place. But he's going up north, and we have here in verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. Samaria is what's between this southern region of Judea and this northern region of Galilee. Okay? And so it's, it's, the middle, it's the middle region. Now we're going to learn some things about Samaria. Samaria is the kind of place that you actually tend to avoid because Samaria is full of Samaritans. That's what you call someone who's from Samaria. And Samaritans are known as sellouts. They're known as religious wishy-washies. They're known as those who, when God's people in the Old Testament would be conquered by these foreign oppressors and come in. There were certain groups of God's people who would try and maintain their way of life, try and be faithful to the ways of God, try and uphold the law that God had given them in spite of the fact that they were now under an oppressive rule. The Samaritans were known for doing the exact opposite and saying, well, we're conquered, might as well go with them. Might as well eat what they eat, might as well speak like they speak, might as well worship what they worship. And so as a, as a good religious person, you would want nothing to do with those type of people. Jesus had to pass through there. But actually, he didn't. <laughs> actually, he didn't. This is working on two levels. Let me show you a map. Some of you really love maps. Some of you thank me every time I show a map, and I don't fully understand. All right, I know that this <laughs> I know that this is a little small, but here's Jerusalem, okay? This is Judea down here, where he's leaving, okay? Up here is the Sea of Galilee. And guess what that region is called? Galilee. And Nazareth, if you can see it, is over there, okay? This middle section is Samaria. This is where Jesus is going to go. I drew you an arrow. I put that arrow on the map. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, this is where he said a Chechem, which is also called Sikhar, same, same place. So this is the middle. Okay, these green and red lines, can you see those? If you can see them, say yes. Okay, so these green and red lines are actually the, the historical routes that the Jewish people would take, mostly from the, from the north to the south, because you'd have to go down to Jerusalem for various Jewish festivals and various, like, um, Big religious high holy days. Okay, so, so you'd have to somehow get from the north down to the south. And there were two options that you had. One was the green option, which would take you out by the Mediterranean Sea, a little scenic route. You go by the sea, you can catch fish as you go and all that. The other one is along the Jordan River and the excuse was, well it's more scenic and again we're, we're close to a river source. Do you notice anything about the green and red lines? Exactly. What is the the quickest distance between two points? Straight line. Are these straight lines? No, they literally go, and no thank you, right? One takes a left turn, one takes a sharp right turn. You don't, you know why? You don't go through Samaria. That's not what you do. You avoid that. Because if you go through Samaria, you're not driving in a car 65 miles an hour, you're with your family, you're going to like a really... Significant, religious, high holy day. It's going to take some time. You're not going to want to stop at a Samaritan hotel. You're not going to want to stop and have to eat their food. You're not going to want to have to sit on the side of the road when you're resting your animals and have Samaritans come up to you and be the ones that you have to talk to. You avoid Samaria. Samaria. Give you a little hint if you think that I'm overblowing this. Is down in verse 9, there's another little parenthesis that the writer is telling us. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This is historical, right? Put that map back up, Tim. This is, this is because of history that you would avoid this place. Now we have in verse 4, this white line is Jesus' path. And we're told, and Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, strictly speaking, he didn't. There were well-worn paths. You would have had Jewish vendors along those paths. You would have had much more comfortable people traveling alongside you on those paths. But it says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. The had to there is this beautiful word in the original language that's just D-E-I, D-E-I, die, die, die. I want you to remember that. I want you to write it in your Bible. D-E-I. D-E-I. Throughout the Gospel of John, dia is what's called by theologians and Bible scholars. It's called the divine imperative. In fact, we've already heard this divine imperative in fairly like famous places, like in John chapter three, where Jesus is having this interaction that maybe you've heard of, maybe you haven't. But um, Jesus says, like back in chapter three, verse seven, he says, "You must be born again." In verse. 14 of that same chapter, just the chapter for us. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. John the Baptist uses this divine imperative in chapter three, verse 30, where he says, he must increase, I must decrease. Dea D-I, is the divine imperative. It's something that is necessary by God's redemptive design. It's not just expedient. In fact, often it's not. It's the opposite of what we would do naturally. John the Baptist would naturally want to increase. He says, no, 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 I must, by God's divine imperative, decrease so that Jesus might increase. Now we're being told Jesus must pass through Samaria. Not because it makes sense, not because it's the easy way, because by God's redemptive design, something is going on here that matters at a cosmic level. And Jesus had to, he must, dia through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. This is talking about a story in the Old Testament. We've gone through that before. I, I won't spend time on that today. And then verse six, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. So it was about the sixth hour. I'll never forget a number of years ago, being uh, on a retreat with some of the leaders in our church, and we were really wrestling with where is where, God taking us as a church. And we felt like there was sort of a, a new vision, a new north star that, that God was beginning to to birth in us, and we um, we're really wrestling with what's the right way to do this. How do you come up with a vision? Does it need to be like handed down? Should we just workshop some language and all those things? And I forget who even made the suggestion, but someone made the suggestion. What if we just kept reading through the story of Jacob's well? And we're reading through this. Pastor knows you remember this moment. We're reading through it, and um, at some point in one of those readings, we just we just Happened upon verse six. Our name by them was, was Jacob's well or had been since the beginning. So this isn't about our name. But we just got to verse six and it said Jacob's well was there. Jacob's well was there. And it just hit us like a thunderbolt. What is that? Why is that significant, right? And what we just kept wrestling with was it's telling us Jacob's well was there because this was God's divinely appointed meeting place for this unbelievably cosmically significant interaction that he has with this woman. We said, what if we became that? What if we became a church that was known for life-changing interactions with the Savior of the universe? And what if we became known as a church that was precisely in the place precisely positioned ourselves, um, felt the divine imperative to be in a place where that was an unexpected place for that to happen. Because what we're about to see is that the reason why Jesus had to pass through Samaria is because of the interaction that he's about to have with a single individual, with a woman. And yet, as I want you to get used to and roll your eyes at three months from now when we're still in the Gospel of John, is there's always two things going on in the Gospel of John. There's what actually happened, and then there's deeper, universal meaning and purpose. So the interaction with this one woman is going to tell us a lot about who Jesus is. It's going to tell us a lot about who we are. It's going to tell us a lot about what God's purposes in the world are. One woman, and yet so much more going on here. And so we said, okay, if that's who we want to become, if that's what we want to be about, how do we put language to that? And it seems like what's in the rest of this passage is John, the the gospel writer here, one of Jesus' closest followers. In fact, we get the sense that this is Jesus' best friend. You can imagine that this story would have stood out to them, is he's at pains to tell us just how unlikely just how countercultural just how how mind-blowingly surprising this interaction would be that this is why god sent his very son from heaven's throne to the middle of a dusty town in the middle of a place that is more unlikely than we could ever possibly imagine so here's what I want you to see from this passage. Tim, put up that, uh, that next slide there. Basically, what John is showing us is all of the barriers that should have been there to keep Jesus and this woman from having this encounter. So we've already talked about one of them. There's a historical barrier here. That he had to pass through Samaria is intentionally waking us up To the realities that made that right, that sharp right and left turn around Samaria, the more likely path for Jesus to have taken. But Jesus is going right into the heart of these historical divisions between these people groups. As a Jewish man, he is headed straight into that historical complexity, that historical naming and finger pointing, that historical, you're this. And we're this. You're not that, and we are this. We're not that, and you are that. He heads right into that historical barrier. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse nine. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews... Have no dealings with samaritans that's john's parenthetical just in case you're wondering why she's so incredibly confused by this interaction you see there's a deep ethnic thing going on here why do you as a jewish man have anything to do with me as a samaritan woman John is pointing out to us, and in case we miss it, he puts it in parentheses. He says, this is not how people of these two ethnicities, this is not how people with these two histories behind that ethnic identity, this is not how they're meant to interact. And oh, how we wish that this was merely an ancient Near East (laughs) dynamic, right? This hits home for us. We stand in a place where there are many different Types of ethnicities jam packed here in this beautiful place of central New Jersey. And there's history behind that. And history plus ethnicity leads to a lot of finger pointing and a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of assumptions made and a lot of conclusions jumped to. And a lot of, yeah, we don't have dealings with them. You know, no, no, no. Ours, we, we don't deal with theirs. We're good by ourselves. We're good doing our thing because they are and we're not. They're not and we are. Right? Jesus, as this interaction goes on, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Oh, sorry, I skipped the verse. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She's so confused. (laughs) Right, he's working at that deeper level, and she's like, I don't even know what we're talking about at this point, right? Like, um, you got to have some sympathy for her. She's just trying. She's just out there trying to get a drink, right? The woman said to him, "Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water?" So what Jesus says is, he says, "If if you had asked me, I would have given you living water." And what living water to her means um, is not a deep metaphor for the all sufficiency of Jesus and the Holy Spirit of God, right? To her, living water means water that that's actually moving, not well water. And water that's moving, right? Like Fiji water that's labeled like, this comes down from the mountains and is purified by the minerals and all that stuff, right? Like, she's like, you got that Fiji. Like, I want in on that Fiji. And she's like, can't help but notice though, you don't even have a bucket. So how in the world are you gonna give me living water? And where do you even get it from? Like, what are we talking about here? We would all be this way, right? She's She's not like exceptionally dense. She's not picking up on this deep thing that Jesus is doing. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave, us, uh, he gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered her, everyone who drinks of this water, will be, talking about the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, okay, <laughs> like, sir. Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Little hint, so that I won't have to come here to draw water. She's not lazy. We actually already have a hint of what's going on with this woman by being told that it's the sixth hour. Okay, So sixth hour, um, in, in ancient times, or at least at this time in culture, uh, you, you start from sun up, okay? You start from sun up and then six hours out. So we're at, about, we're at about high noon here. We're right in the middle of the day. And this woman is at a well, which to us is like, okay, whatever, like why the timestamp? To, to any ancient reader, you go, what? what? Why is there a woman at a well at noontime? Because a woman at a well was an exceptional. A woman at a well at noontime raises all kinds of questions. Because if you're going out to the well, you want to go out in the morning. You know why you want to go out in the morning? Because it's cool. Exactly. It's cool, the water is cold. You go out to the well to get your water for the rest of the day's affairs. To you know, to wash, to drink, to use for cooking, whatever you're going to use it for. And so a lot of that, you would much prefer cold water. And probably this was something that in those times, right, a lot, of the, a lot of the community would go out together. You'd go out in the morning. You'd each take your turn. It was a very social event. It was something to start your day. It was part of the routine to start your day. She's there at the hottest part of the day, which tells you what? It tells you that there's some reason why she does not feel comfortable going out with the rest of the town. There's some reason why she has set it up. Have you ever done this? Have you ever set it up so that you are absolutely certain you will not run into someone when you go and do a certain activity, right? Like. Some of y'all scheming, right? Like, some of you know, like, oh, I'm not gonna do the grocery shopping then because there's a chance that that neighbor that I see, or like, they say, t- oh, good, they're taking their garbage out now. Like, let me wait until they're done, right? Like, and then you go out and take it out or whatever. Oh, I'm hitting home with some people, okay. Um, that's, that's this at a heightened level for this woman, right? Something's going on here. And she probably knows that Jesus or whoever this man is, she probably knows that he's a little curious, like what's going on here. Now what Jesus is going to do is he's going to put his finger right on the cause of that dynamic for her. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I don't have a husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband. If you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not even your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So what's going on here? We don't know exactly. Um, there's a lot of discussion around this. I think the, the conclusion that we quickly jump to is, oh, she's, she's been running around with all these different men, and she's... Uh, honestly, what most biblical scholars say is, is given the cultural... Um, sort of environment of that time, it's far more likely that a woman who has had five husbands isn't out just whatever, like um, having various affairs and all that stuff. She's more likely been someone who has unfaithfully been handed along from husband to husband. Whatever's going on here, what what I've often said when we go through this passage is like all of us, there's some combination here, almost certainly, I don't know what the percentages are, of her own sin and the way that she's been sinned against. And, and, and I don't exactly know how, we, for some reason we're not told exactly all the dynamics here, but he's certainly putting his finger on her source of deepest pain and shame. Which, whichever it is, he goes there with her. He says, I, I know why you're out here. I know why you're feeling ashamed. I know why you feel less than in this town. I know why you set up your entire life and plan your life around the fact that you don't want to be seen by, by these other people. I know why you, why you drink hot water every day and why you let yourself go thirsty all morning is because the hurt and the pain goes that deep for you that you're willing to avoid even the hint of it, any reminder of it. I understand that, he says. What's so interesting here is her response I think, is all of our response when Jesus goes there for us. She says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. She gets real theological. She says, our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. He's like, okay, I'll go there with you. I know this is a shocking moment. I know you're processing. How do you know my worst secret? How do you know my deepest pain? And, and most scholars say this is just a distracting argument. She wants to have. She's like, okay, um, so you're a Jewish prophet. Okay, cool. Um, what do you believe about like, where the temple should be? What do you believe? And Jesus goes there gently with her. It ultimately ends with her saying, because he keeps pushing. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. He's just named her deepest pain. He's gone to the ultimate barrier in some ways that this woman has, which, which I'm just going to call kind of kind of moral, right? That, that she's been sinned against. She's been sinned. She's in shame, deep shame. And she, she tries to make it a theological argument. And then he says, hey, everything you're talking about, I'm standing right in front of you. I am he. The one who just named your deepest source of shame the one who just put his finger on everything that has kept you from living any kind of flourishing life, I'm God in flesh. Now she's got infinitely more to chew on, right? She thought it was a lot before. She thought it was a lot that Jesus was an insightful prophet. Now she's got the very son of God standing in front of her, and that's the one who's named her shame and pain. I love that she says, Lord, I perceive that you're a prophet. She tries to, it seems like, she tries to get out of this very personal moment, this very eye-to-eye moment by saying, oh, I get it. You're showing me, you're showing me your status. You're, you're showing off. Wow, I'm impressed. Wow, I'm so impressed by your power. She's trying to create, she's trying to name sort of the social dynamic going on here. She's trying to say, oh, yeah, you, you in this moment have more power than me. You're a prophet, right? And by the end of the conversation, he says, oh, if only you fully understood, right? I'm way more than a prophet. I am I, I, reality itself standing in front of you. They have this conversation, right? There's these religious things that we get a hint of by this conversation about we believe different things than the Jewish people believe. And then just the final barrier is his disciples come back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. Right? He just didn't do this this time didn't do this. You weren't seen in public, especially as a religious figure, especially as someone who has seen moral. Again, Jesus has no interest in those categories. (laughs) He has no interest in those categories of what looks proper, okay? He knows his heart. He knows what he's here to do. I love that it says that they don't question him. I've always taken that as it's already fairly early in his ministry. They're learning like, Yeah, we're done questioning. (laughs) We're done being like, why would you? Isn't that not the right thing? Like, you can imagine that they had already asked a thousand questions about, why are we going through Samaria? You know there's a perfectly good route. It's red and green. Like, it's very festive. Like, we can go either of those. Why are we on this bizarre path straight through? They've been asking, asking, asking. By now, they're like, all right, now he's talking to some woman out at this well, right? But no one, no one questions it because they're beginning to learn that maybe his ways aren't their ways. Maybe their expectations of him are going to be completely shattered and not just exceeded but totally different than what they set out and what they thought these interactions were going to be. You see, there's all of these barriers, historical barriers, ethnic barriers, moral barriers, social barriers, religious barriers, gender barriers, one interaction, and it's all there. Right? This is the gospel of John at its just most brilliant because it's saying that Jesus doesn't, he doesn't go a sharp right or left turn around these barriers. He goes after them. He breaks them, right? That's what we landed on. We want to be a church that does the same thing. We want to break those barriers in Jesus' name. We want to go where he will go. We want to feel the divine imperative where the world would say, what are you doing? Why would you want to do that kind of work? We want to be in central Jersey. We want to be a Middlesex County. We want a church that is not just beautifully diverse, but where the barriers of history and of power and of religion and all of these things, all of these misunderstandings are brought down in the name of Jesus. That's who we want to be. Other churches might not feel that divine imperative. They have other divine imperatives. And this is not our church is better than other churches. Here's what every church should do. This is us, y'all. And our divine imperative is we want to say, Jacob's well was there. Where were we? In central New Jersey. Why were we there? Because of all of this stuff. Not in spite of it. We were there because of these things. And we said, we're going to talk about these things. We're actually going to name them. We're going to talk about them in discipleship. We're gonna talk about them from the pulpit. We're actually gonna wrestle with these things, not to be seen as whatever, associated with some political party, not to be seen as woke or not woke or whatever. Leave all that at the door, y'all. We don't do labels here. We do Jesus here, and Jesus does this stuff. He names it, he goes after it, and he breaks it down so that others might encounter him in life-changing ways. That's who we are, okay? That's our vision, you can clap for that. That's our North Star, okay? So what can be? Can I just name this? Over the last couple of years, we have seen unmistakably barriers, right, that have come up in our nation, right and left, woke, anti-woke, right, all this, all this stuff, justice, um, whatever, right, like uh, all this stuff, right, has come up. We've talked about it here. One of the things that I hope you're hearing in this is that's just who we are, right? We're not doing that to be impressive. We don't even really do social media, right? Like we're not trying to impress anybody out in the world. We're doing that because if you're here, this is the vision that you signed up for. So we're gonna talk about this stuff and we're gonna wrestle with it. And we're gonna name it and, and we're going to bring the scriptures to bear on these things. We're going to bring different perspectives that we all bring on these things. But we can't be surprised because this is our North Star. That's where we're going. That's our dia, okay? And it's, um, uh, that's what I want to say, okay? <laughs> we want to do all this, though, right? Notice that breaking barriers is not the end goal. Right, because we could be a really cool nonprofit and seek to break those barriers and just create community. Right, we could be um, a justice-only organization, and that could, be, and we could just as easily say we're here to break barriers. Right, um, so that people might have community or whatever. It's a beautiful vision. We are a gospel-centered church, as we'll talk about next week, which means the end goal isn't breaking barriers. It's breaking barriers so that we might experience what this woman experienced. He doesn't go there and just say, "How cool is it that we're having this interaction? Isn't this weird? Isn't this, can you post this?" Right? Like, "Can you can you show the world just how whatever, how enlightened I am as this Jewish prophet?" Right? Jesus says, "No, no, no. I'm here to do deep life transformation. I'm here to change you." Okay? So we break these barriers to encounter Jesus together. So let's talk about that now because we see at least three things going on here in terms of what it means to encounter Jesus. First, Jesus always asks something of us but ends up giving us more. We want you to get used to this. We want you to get used to, given that this is our our vision, that things will be asked of you. Jesus will ask you to go to places and have conversations that maybe you don't wanna have. But when Jesus asks something of us, he's always gonna give us more. If it's truly rooted in his call of us, however much we think we're sacrificing, he always pours out more. That's what this beautiful line in verse 10 means. Jesus answered her, right, this is probably the weirdest part of the interaction. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Two levels of what is going on. This really happened, right? He's saying, look, all I'm asking is for us to have an interaction. That's why I'm asking you for water. I'm trying to start a conversation here. You have no idea what's on the other side of this conversation, but there's a deeper level going on here. He's also saying, I know it looks like I'm asking something of you, and I'm going to get something from you, what I'm actually offering behind that request is so much more than you can imagine. This is the rhythm of response to Jesus. This is the rhythm of encounter with Jesus. Jesus very rarely actually goes up and encounters someone without asking something either to them or of them first. And normally it looks like, why is Jesus making him do this? Why is Jesus? He wants to show us he's always going to outgive us. He's always, in fact, the very language here, if you knew the gift of God, other translations go with the more literal translation here, which is if you understood the grace of God. You see, what grace does, grace, the literal definition of it is getting what you don't deserve. Getting what you don't deserve. And Jesus is saying one of the hardest things for the human heart to come to understand and believe is grace. That God, that the creator of the universe will actually give you what you don't deserve. We are so used to getting only what we deserve in our families, right? Family systems work off this. Certainly the workplace works off of this dynamic that it's just so hard for us to wrap our minds around. Yeah, but God, God does want me to clean up this part of my life. God doesn't really want me exactly as I am. Let, let me get this straight, and, and then I'll probably be acceptable to him. And Jesus is saying to us, and he's saying to this Samaritan woman, he's saying, I know, that's really hard to believe, but that's not grace. That's earned favor. That's deserved mercy. No, 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 grace. If you understood the grace of God and who it was that was asking of you whatever, to come to him, to pray, to confess your sin, right? These hard things at the front end of the Christian life that then follow us through the Christian life. He says, but I'm gonna outgive when you give that little bit. And I know it feels like a lot now, but if you knew the reward on the other side of it, oh, how easy it would be to step into just that one thing I'm asking of you. Also, we see here the unescapable... She's trying to keep things superficial. He's going like super deep. Right? She's trying to say, oh, um, let's do a, a theology conversation. Let's get our theology straight. Let's talk about where the temple's supposed to be located. He's like, yeah, we're, we're talking about your relationships here. We're talking about your pain. We're talking about your shame. We're talking about the fact like you're out here at noon. I want to talk about that. And Yet he's so gentle. Do you hear know how gentle he is with her? He lets, her, he lets her take the conversation where he, she wants to take it. But listen, by the end, you heard it already from what Amy read. By the end, she's utterly transformed. And we know she's utterly transformed because of how this ends. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. No one said, what do you speak or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. You see the transformation there? Unbelievable level of transformation that this woman has experienced. She slinks off like she does every day in the hot sun, hoping no one sees her, alone at the well. She gets her tepid water from the well. She's hoping to go back every day. Now, what does this say? It says after this interaction with Jesus, she does two things. What's the first thing chronologically she does? She drops her water jar. The thing she thought she needed most in that moment now looks trivial, to the point she just drops it. She leaves it. What's the other thing she does? She books it back into town. you got to picture this, right? She leaves. She's at her front door, right, like like a true New Jerseyan, like, (laughs) is anybody outside, right? And she goes when the coast is clear. Now she goes back, and she's screaming throughout the town, I'm changed. I'm forever changed. You know what I'm changed by? I'm changed by a man who told me all that I ever did. Ha, you know what she's saying? She's saying, he knows more than you do. And yet, right, what's, what clearly happens in the rest of this interaction? Yet he loves me. Yet he said he's the savior of the world and the son of God. And he came all the way from heaven's throne to dusty sicker, to Jacob's well. And it was for me that he came. He told me everything. He knew it all. And he said, no, no, no still understand the grace of God. Still, what I'm asking of you, I'm going to give you way more. No, 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 you don't have to clean yourself up. I came to you just as you are. That's how I accept you. That's how I embrace you. Could this be the Christ? Like, I think he is. Go out, see him, see him. And there's something so compelling in her witness that it says the whole town comes out to him, whatever that means, right? It's probably a hyperbole, but like it's expressing something, right? Jesus has an interaction with one woman, one woman, quiet. You can imagine, just, just deathly quiet. He has this interaction, and then all of a sudden he looks. And there's dust, right, <laughs> on, the, on the dirt road, and the whole town is coming out to him because this one woman has encountered Jesus, and he went deep into her story, and he, he stayed there long enough to allow her to work through that, to allow her to take the conversation where she wants. but ultimately he got down deep into her, and then she's sent back and she's sent back, and because of the, the most rejected person in this village, this village, this town, this city is forever changed. It says the whole town comes out to him, and then they're begging him to stay. You know what they're saying? They're begging for more, right? Because they get to experience what she experienced. Notice that her message is not, come see a philosophical system. Come see a really cool new moral way. Come see a really compelling worldview. What does she say? Come see a man. We break barriers so that others might come and see a man. Might come and encounter not the wonder that is Jacob's well. God help us, if that's what we're calling people to. Or not, You know, uh, (laughs) I always tell this story that very early on, a relative of ours came to one of the really early gatherings of Jacob's Well, and our founding pastor got up and she was like, Is that Jacob? Um, (laughs) Put it together, right? Like, I'm not Jacob, right? Like, that's not even my name. I'm Scott, okay? Like, you're not coming. Please don't bring them to see me. Come see a man who tells you, who tells me everything we ever did good, bad, ugly, sin, sinned against, deepest shame and pain. Loves us, loves us, works straight through all of those barriers, and is there for embrace the God of the universe. What kind of culture does this lead to? I read this quote last year and I feel like it's worth rolling out again. This is from probably it's books of the year kind of time. Probably my favorite book of the last year is, is a book by um, a great Anglican writer. Her name is, is Tish Warren. I actually went to seminary with her, (laughs) a little brush with celebrity. Um, But she wrote this beautiful book, and I actually think most of this quote is is she's quoting Rich Mullins back in the day. Rich Mullins, any Rich Mullins fans? Yeah, there you go, I like it. Um, He said this, I never understood why going to church made you a hypocrite. Because nobody goes to church because they're perfect. If you've got it all together, you don't need to go. You can go, I love this little shot at the joggers. You can go jogging with all the other perfect people on Sunday morning. Ooh, next slide. Tim, next slide. Okay. Every time you go to church, right? And I want you to think Jacob's Well. This is us. Every time you go to Jacob's Well, you're confessing again to yourself, to your family, to the people you pass on the way there, to the people who will greet you there, that you don't have it all together. And that you need their support. You need their direction. You need some accountability. You need some help. Next slide. The ones Jesus calls are the weary ones the ones who snap at those they love after a long day, the ones who battle addiction, the ones who aren't who they wish they were, the ones who know they are not strong, the ones who wrestle and repent, who fail and fail again, this is the church, these ones through whom Jesus is strong. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for uh, this vision. God, we thank you that you have given us this divine imperative to be here, Lord, and to be the kind of church that would embody this kind of culture that we just heard, Lord, that we would not be a place that is proud of who we are, that says, come and see how wonderful we are, but that we would say, come and see our weakness, come and see how imperfect we are, and yet see a man who knows all of it and loves us still and then is committed to our deep change and transformation. God, do this work. This is not um, simple work. This is complex work. This is messy work at times. But God, it's what you've called this church to. So God, keep us faithful to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.